giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Stefan Ango, co-founder and head of product at Lumi. Stefan, thank you for joining me. So Lumi is an interesting company because I wouldn't necessarily look at the exciting world of packaging and say, you know, this is exciting. This is interesting. You're using Haskell. You're So how did Lumi get started? And I sense that it solves a real problem in the industry. The problem that it solves is slightly different on the scale of the company. But basically, mm-hmm. we help e-commerce brands and e-commerce re- retailers manage and order the packaging that they need to ship orders to their customers. Mm -hmm. So we connect people who work at these companies, designers, operations people, fulfillment people with factories that have the equipment that is capable of manufacturing those items. We've got thousands of factories on our network that make all kinds of different things from corrugated boxes to all kinds of different paper products to cotton drawstring bags and tape um, and each of those are you know, different equipment, different type of manufacturing processes that are used. And we sort of centralize all of that stuff so that people can manage the design process, the ordering process, the manufacturing and delivery of all this stuff. And we work with companies who ship anywhere from 500 orders a month to millions of orders a month. So as they grow, the types of problems that they run into differ quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Well, your background is a, as an industrial designer, right? Yeah, although uh, my <laughs> I actually dropped out of industrial design school. The only real degree that I have is in biology, specifically like evolutionary biology and that kind of stuff, zoology. I was interested in all that before I got into design. Why did you why did you get into design? Well, you know, I've always been building websites since I was probably 12 or 13, which I guess is for the past 20 years at this point. And I never really thought of that as a career. I just thought that was a fun hobby. And I, I thought I should do something serious like science. And I really love biology. It's a, it's a big inspiration for me in everything that I do. But I always wanted to pursue something maybe a little bit more creative and get a chance to apply my own sense of like natural selection to the world, you know, design things myself. So when I discovered industrial design, it kind of felt like the perfect blend of two of my biggest interests. One is seeing how, you know, shapes and forms are suited to their environment and then having that, you know, creative direction around it. So I went to school and that's where I met my, um, my co-founder, Jesse, uh, Jesse Janae, and I went to Art Center, studied industrial design there and started the very first version of Lumi about nine years ago, which was a completely different company at the time. It was uh, based around this uh, product called Incodie, which we brought to Kickstarter and crowdfunded. It was a pretty big success on Kickstarter. It was an art supply product that basically allowed you to print t-shirts at home. And how did that lead to Lumi? Well, so we were in this really early time on Kickstarter. The first campaign was in 2009, and that was only six months after the the platform had launched. Uh, It was a really different time. People didn't understand what Kickstarter even was. And we raised around $13,000, and that was a huge campaign. It was like one of the top 10 biggest campaigns at the time. And then we came back in 2012 and had an even bigger one uh, that was a lot better. And by that time, Kickstarter was a little bit more established. But we were just trying to figure out how to sell a product online. At the time, Kickstarter was more used by 
creative people who wanted to crowdfund like a music album or a trip or, you know, there was this woman who sent postcards from all around the world and that was her, her project. So the idea that you see today of crowdfunding physical products and hardware and that kind of stuff wasn't quite as well figured out. So there were all kinds of problems around manufacturing and fulfillment and logistics that were not solved. So we had to solve them ourselves. Luckily, there were a few platforms that you know, helped us along the way, Shopify and Stripe and MailChimp, all these different tools were out there helping us collect orders from our customers and manage the the customer service aspect of everything. But the physical side, we, we had to rely on, you know, good old telephone and email and faxes and walking over to places and, you know, talking to people in factories and warehouses. And so we just built up our own knowledge around that and people kind of became experts in that area and our friends and people in in our network and in our sort of racket of making things on the internet and trying to sell physical products would come to us for advice on packaging and manufacturing. And we decided that that was uh, an area that was underserved and wanted to build a platform around it. If Incodai had been super successful, would you have still done Lumi? (laughs) Well, it's hard because that product was so niche and Mm -hmm. very specific that it's hard to imagine it being like more successful than it was. I think we achieved basically the maximum level of success that it could have had, which is not like world changing. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed like a relatively clear path that with Lumi, you had something that was wider appeal solving a problem. Well, you know, the weird thing about Incodai, and it's a very specific thing, it's, it, Incodai is, if you've ever done cyanotype or any sort of like darkroom photography, it's sort of a similar process, except you're doing this on fabric rather than on paper. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it at a slightly bigger scale because you might do it on a t-shirt or in a other kind of clothing as opposed to, you know, four by six or some other size print. And so th- there was a kind of chemistry and sciencey thing that I really enjoyed about that. But we actually made a really cool iOS app for it that was like, I think pretty awesome. And that was just me trying to squeeze in software wherever I could. But I think it actually got people excited because if you go back to our Kickstarter campaign, you can see a little bit of how the app works. And that was like the first version. We made it even better. It allowed you to take photos and prototype the way that the print would actually turn out. And it even had this like cool augmented reality feature where you could overlay that on top of the live camera view on your phone. So you could kind of play around with different designs and see how it actually look on a t-shirt. And because it's a dye and not an ink, the color would blend with the color. So if you have a yellow shirt and you used blue ink, you would get a blue print with like green mm-hmm. sort of duotone colors in between because it would mix with the dye in the fabric. And so this app would help you mock that up and then you could print negatives at home or you could order them from us. And that was kind of a very early prototype for stuff that we would end up doing with Lumi later on. Mm -hmm. So why does packaging matter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways to answer that question. I mean, you know, long term, maybe we'll we'll invent teleportation at Lumi. You know, that that Mm -hmm. might be a a long term goal. But in the meantime... You know, even in in my life as as an industrial designer, prior to going down what I do most of the time these days, which is software development, I've always been fascinated by the stuff that you don't notice. You know, a lot of my friends and peers in the industrial design world, 
you know, wanted to design cars and cool stuff that just looks really cool when you look at it or is flashy in some way or is a product that you interact with and you say that was a great thing. What I really enjoy is a doorknob or a thing where you interact with it all the time and you never even think about it. And a box is that exact thing. Like Mm -hmm. you're constantly interacting with boxes without really thinking about it too much or maybe you are you've got like a pile of amazon boxes next to your front door or something that you have to interact with but it's kind of a miraculous object and material the corrugated material that is used to make boxes is an innovation that's 100 plus years old at this point and enables us to move so much of the merchandise and products and things that we rely on between that and like shipping containers Those are two innovations that your life would not be possible without. So I do think it's very exciting. It's something that basically enables our our modern lifestyle. And it's completely just happening in the background of most people's lives. And so we are wondering with what we're doing at Lumi, first of all, how can we make it a lot easier for this modern e-commerce enabled economy that we're living in and that that is like quickly growing more and more in that direction how do we enable that to happen more seamlessly how do we think of manufacturing as an abstracted network of factories kind of like how you know amazon web services allows you to log in and provision a server we want to sort of think of that similar analogy how do you go into the lumi dashboard and provision manufacturing equipment to do a certain thing without you necessarily having to understand all the details of how that actually happens in the real world. And how can we make sure that stuff gets manufactured properly and delivered to your warehouses properly so that you can grow your business and focus on whatever it is you're trying to do. We have companies among our clients who do all kinds of stuff. MeUndies is one of our uh, great customers sells underwear on the internet, parachute home, you know, ships out bedding and, and, and that kind of stuff. We've got mattress companies. We've got, you know, all the podcast advertisers you, you hear probably use us for their packaging. And we try to enable their supply chain to be as seamless as possible. And for me personally, going back to the biology thing, it's a question of as we build up that capacity and volume in our supply chain, how do we then go back and optimize it as much as possible to reduce the carbon emissions around freight, to optimize the material usage, to you know, reduce the number of components and reduce the amount of packaging waste that goes on? Um, so it's really kind of a big optimization problem in the end. What parts is Lumi focused on? It's creating the packages and then getting whatever's being shipped into the package? Or where, where do you draw the boundaries in terms of what you're involved in? So neither of those things. We do everything in between. So we don't do any graphic design. We're not like a branding agency. Most of the designers we work with are employed by the companies, but some of them are also design agencies who, who work with our customers. There's a word that's like really important in our world, which is a die line. The die line is basically the shape, the outline of your box. And we're going to talk a lot about boxes, but there's all kinds of other we probably have 60 different categories of things and they all sort of work in similar ways. But a die line is essentially the, the shape of a box. So we'll produce those. And if you need one that is custom for some reason because you have a special size product, we'll give you that die line file and then you can put your artwork in there with Illustrator and you work with your designers and they'll do that part. 
once you're ready, we'll price that item. So almost everything that we sell is unique. It has unique printing, unique printing processes and materials. There's thousands of grades of corrugated board. There's, there's all kinds of things that are possible. So every single item has its own price. So we'll price it out. And then you know, we'll collect some other pieces of information, like where are you delivering this to? We'll try to find the right factory and the right equipment for each job to optimize how much transit this item needs to make. For some types of products, it really helps to have it produced as close as possible to where it will be delivered. So when you say to where it will be delivered, do you mean to the end? No, to the warehouse. Yeah, yeah, to the distribution center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because our end result is that we deliver the basically pallets of packaging to a warehouse. And then that warehouse, sometimes people call them third-party logistics or distribution centers. Those are the places that are in charge of then shipping it to the end customer. That's not in our wheelhouse. So how are you using software at Lumi to make that process work? Well, software is, is kind of the main thing that we do. We kind of have three major divisions at Lumi. We have the engineering side. We have sales, which is you know helping our customers. There's a lot of jargon and things that we need to help people with. And then operations, which is our team that works with our manufacturing partners and our network of factories to make sure everything gets done once an order is placed in managing all the logistics. So we build software for all three of those parties. We have a customer-facing dashboard where clients log in and they can see their supply chain in real time. They can see all the shipments that are going to their different warehouses. They can see all the items and where they're being manufactured and where they're coming from. They can view their billing and pay. I mean, these these sound like basic things, but mm-hmm. in the packaging industry, <laughs> they're not. And that's why we're building this. Like, the standard is that you have to go to 10 different vendors and all those different vendors have their own purchase order process and it's a very complicated thing. We're trying to simplify all of that so that you can do it all online in your pajamas uh, on a Sunday evening. So we have that dashboard. Then we have our own internal software, which is a category of software you would call an ERP, which is which means enterprise resource planning. There's some big ones out there that you might have heard of, like Oracle makes one and SAP makes one. We decided to build our own because we wanted to control that a little bit more. And that's quite a challenging piece of software to build. And then we have factory-facing software that we're building to help the factories optimize their process because they're also a little bit more analog and we're trying to bring their capabilities up online. So we're building software for three different parties. Mm-hmm. Is there an area that you focus most on or or are you spanning all three? Well, yeah. So my role at the company is is chief product officer. So I kind of oversee the whole thing and I definitely have opinions about all of it, but we sort of let different people run with different areas of the of that stack. You know, some of the interesting problems that we run into, I mentioned the fact that every different item is priced in a unique way. So that's kind of a a challenging thing because every product out of the 60 categories of products that we make and each of those 60 categories probably has 100 variables associated with them, there's a lot of different things that go into pricing any given thing. And so we're trying to constantly improve our pricing mechanisms because the industry standard is it takes two weeks to turn around a price. We want to get to the point where it's instantaneous. So we make use of a couple programming languages. We use React on the front end, but more and more we've been using this language called PureScript, which was invented by Phil Freeman, who's a 
lead engineer at, at Lumi and is a strongly typed programming language. And it follows in the philosophy of, of Haskell, which is the language we predominantly use for our API or for our backend. Mm-hmm. And the reason we use it um, and we've been moving more and more in that direction is because for us, if any small variable that we mention is wrong, <laughs> it could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like could be a really expensive mistake. If you say that you want your box printed in the PMS 386 and it, you know, we print it in 486, mm-hmm. that might mean your box turns out red instead of blue or something like that. So we want to make sure that every piece of spec information is structured as opposed to just put into you know a form field that has no Mm -hmm. uh, inherent type so those are some of the things that you know we leverage to make sure that our data has a lot of integrity and then there's a whole supply chain that's just the beginning that's just like pricing making sure we understand the specs of an item and then everything flows from there making sure that some of these products are made in China. A lot of them are made in the U.S. They're made in all kinds of different factories and different equipment. We're trying to create an interface where people can go in at any given time like you would with UPS. You can you know, plug in your order number and see exactly where it's at in the manufacturing process. That's a hard problem because every factory has their own process. Every factory has their own systems. And we're trying to integrate with all of those things. And then, you know, I'm skipping a bunch of steps, but the last step is that delivery part that I was describing. You know, we have customers who place an order for a million boxes at a time. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that when you need to move a million boxes from a factory to a warehouse, first of all, the factory doesn't have enough space on their floor. The warehouse might not have enough space on their floor. So there's some complicated logistical problems. That's, that's 70 entire truckloads that have to move from one place to another. And we take charge of actually booking all those trucks you know, that means 70 people have to put their boots on in the morning to go in a truck, pick up these things, move them from one place to another. There's a tremendous amount of physical stuff that's happening. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to turn all of that into APIs, trying to turn all of those activities into individual workflows that are actionable through software. I imagine that all these different pieces, you didn't just wait to build a business until you had all those different pieces, right? Yeah. That's right. So what did you first build and how did you manage building the right thing along the way for what you needed to actually run the business? Yeah, that's a really, really great point. We're probably always going to be in the middle of that because the way that we approached it generally is to use like the best tool that we could for each part of it. And we've been gradually building pieces ourselves and removing those third-party tools. Mm -hmm. The first thing that we built was a thing that was unique to us that only we could build, which was our editor. And that is a tool where you could go in and upload designs and prototype them in our web-based interface. We actually just discontinued that because we discovered that people really wanted to use Illustrator Mm -hmm. to do, and we were, there's a company called Figma that is like attempting to replace Illustrator with a web-based version, which is an incredible challenge. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is a really, really hard problem. And we decided that we preferred not to do that. But, you know, in the very beginning, we were using Shopify for our store. And we've used various accounting softwares, like one that we used until recently is called Xero uh, with an X um, that is really good. It lets you make invoices and all that kind of stuff. 
you know, we've used Salesforce and we've used different customer service apps. Like we've used a bunch of tools. We've used Airtable. We love Airtable. The Airtable is a really awesome product that's sort of like somewhere between a spreadsheet and a database and allows you to quickly, if you're not a developer, you can actually build out some really complex data structures in there in a WYSIWYG interface. And it's super smart. And we've used that a lot to prototype new ideas. We use an app called Zapier, which is like a glue that connects everything together. So mm-hmm. you can basically create triggers that send information from Airtable to Zero and from Shopify to Airtable and kind of glue this whole thing together. And that was sort of version one. And then we gradually took pieces off of that and built them ourselves in, in our own ERP software. Because like you said, it wouldn't have made sense to wait for three years until we had built this platform in order to start the business. We needed to kind of validate that that this was worth building in the first place. Mm-hmm. Do you view Lumi as a software-based company or a software company or a logistics company? Or what do you think about it? I think what makes us unique is the software that we built. The business model that we have is not very unique. People have been doing this idea of being a distributor or a broker for packaging for a really long time. It's a very fragmented space, but there's huge, huge companies in this industry. They're public multi-billion dollar companies that do what we do. The difference is that they do it through tens of thousands of employees who come and knock on your door and explain to you what packaging is. We're trying to do it through a software system that allows you to manipulate in real time the supply chain. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, we're enabling you to optimize and manage your packaging supply chain. And the way that we do that is through software. Earlier this year, you announced that you had raised your Series A. Yeah. Had you raised money before? (laughs) Yeah, we've done every different way to raise money, I think, between our, our two companies. Yeah, we've been on Kickstarter. We've raised like small angel investments. We've gotten loans. Jesse went on Shark Tank. My co-founder went on Shark Tank at one point. And we've done most recently VC. Um, we went through Y Combinator as well. So we've tried it all. Uh, I feel like that's an area that <laughs> uh, when people ask me for advice on that, I could talk for about 17 hours straight on it. Well, you, you've tried it all. And, and has it been easy or hard? Depends. The Series A was a lot easier than other things that we've done. For the most part, it's hard. But the Series A was a little bit easier because we really took our time getting the business to a place where we felt that the fundamentals were really solid, that we knew what we were doing, we understood our customers. That part took you know, easily two and a half years. And by the time we were ready to talk to investors, we had a pretty solid idea of what we were doing. And we had a track record of doing that for a while. So that conversation actually happened really quickly. That being said, it's not a common thing to walk into, you know, a Silicon Valley office and say like, you know, hey, we're making cardboard. It's not right. like the most, it doesn't sound on the surface like, you know, we're going into VR or drones or flying cars or something. It's a very practical thing. Yeah, that is part of what I was getting at was, did the investors understand where you're going or did you need to walk them through what you were actually doing and, and what kind of company you actually were? I think it was pretty split. The ones who got it really got it and the mm-hmm. ones who didn't, didn't. There wasn't too much in between. There, you know, I think there's probably some deserved negativity around venture capital and, and kind of what its incentives are. But in, in our case, what we found was that 
a lot of people that we came to were pretty thoughtful about the way they approached it and had a lot of curiosity around what we were doing and challenged us with questions that they had about how big it could get or where we would go with this idea. And I think it gave us the discipline to organize our thoughts and our process a lot better. And that's the part that we've enjoyed about working with larger scale investors. So in terms of how big it can be and where you're going, staying on the investment side a little bit, like, did you know how much money you needed? Like, how did you set that out? And what influenced how much money you ended up raising in your Series A, which was, I think, $9 million, right? Yeah, I think, you know, you want to back out from there. Like, we knew that there were certain things that we wanted to accomplish. We're lucky to be in a business where the things that we manufacture, we manufacture on demand. So we don't have to spend money up front to buy inventory. Our customers come to us and say, we want to make this thing. You know, usually they pay us and then we make the thing and then we deliver the thing. So, you know, a lot of companies when they're seeking investment need to make big expenses in inventory or locations or things like that. That wasn't really our case. In our case, what we needed was to hire a bunch of smart people to build out this ERP software and all these different, you know, things that I was just describing. And as you probably know, engineering is is an expensive thing. So that that was like probably the biggest area that we were intending to invest in. The other big one, we don't really seek to like vertically integrate. We're not trying to become a factory. We're trying to become an enabler on top of an existing network of, of factories. But one thing that we did want to get good at was prototyping. So we um, invested in a prototyping lab that we built in our headquarters in Los Angeles, where when someone is you know, planning to make a big run, if someone's going to invest in you know, making a million boxes, we want to make sure it's going to turn out right. It's a big investment for everyone. So we've built that using a, a set of different types of equipment and a couple smart people there too, a way to turn around samples that represent very accurately what is going to come out of that production process so that we can take a look at it, test it, make sure, you know, it's going to go through shipping properly, that it's, you know, can support the weight of the product. Like people with on the e-commerce and direct-to-consumer side are trying all kinds of crazy ideas. Like they're shipping furniture in the mail now and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to do that has no best practices. Like people haven't tried to do that really before. So there's a certain amount of structural engineering work and prototyping that part that I described before the design happens where we're creating a die line. We wanted to make sure that that, that happened seamlessly and that we could you know, plan for how that's going to go once the, the item is actually manufactured. Uh, so we invested in that as well. There's some the kind of fancy equipment that we wanted to buy, and that's paid off amazingly already. So those were probably the two biggest areas. And that's, you know, we backed into it by looking at what big investments we wanted to make. You mentioned that there are sort of existing businesses who do similar things or in the same space and mm-hmm. how you're different. So how do you see the total opportunity and why why is now the right time for Lumi? Packaging is is just a huge, huge market. It's around $400 billion worldwide in terms of like the amount that gets spent on it. We're very focused on a specific part of that industry, which is e-commerce. And it's a smaller segment of it, but it's a very rapidly growing one. If you look at the trends, there's um, the U.S., uh, I forget 
which bureau of like I don't know trade commission maybe does mm-hmm. this some someone does a, a census on e-commerce and purchasing behaviors they've been looking at it for the past 20 years the growth in the share of dollars that goes to e-commerce has grown like 15% year over year in almost like a straight line very very reliably but yet we're still at just about 10% of you know every retail dollars get spent online which is such a relatively small number I mean, I think most of us, you know, people listening to this would feel like a lot of their money goes to like websites, but that's not the case for, you know, the majority of of purchases and for people, you know, who might not be in urban areas or that kind of thing. So there's a lot of growth potential in this area. And we really see this from a fundamentally like logistical point of view, which is that the way our cities are built, the way our roads and transportation is set up is based on this idea that you are going to take your car to a store and you know this box of empty space and you're going to go pick up a thing off the shelf with your own hands and drive back into a car and go back home and the question that Amazon and lots of people who are in the e-commerce space are asking is is that really the most efficient way to do things and is that the most not only efficient from like a sustainability point of view but efficiently from the point of view of how do you want to spend your days? Do you want to spend your days picking things off of shelves in a retail store? So there's a lot of these questions that are coming up and people are innovating in a lot of different ways of how we can transform that like logistical challenge. And so that's the why now, I think. That's the part where, I mean, you're hearing about it every day if you listen to podcasts, all these interesting companies Mm -hmm. that are popping up and they're saying, hey, how can we create a better experience around each one of these products in just about every vertical of type of thing that you might be purchasing in your life. What's the biggest risk that you face as a company or biggest challenge? I think that the risks that I feel on a personal level have nothing to do with packaging. Mm -hmm. They have to do with just creating a really awesome place to work. You know, what's actually way more important to me about Lumi than exactly what we're doing at any given time, because that might change or evolve over the years is are we creating an environment where people can come and do their best work and learn and be inspired by the the stuff that their colleagues are doing and feel like the stuff that they're doing has an impact on the world is improving you know we hear a lot of like bad news every day uh if you look at the news i want to create a place where we can feel like we have an optimistic point of view and that we're actually making things better I mean, sustainability is one that, you know, I've been harping on, but other things like the content that we produce, I host a podcast called Well Made, which is about entrepreneurship and empowering these other businesses who themselves are enabling a lot of good stuff in the world. My co-founder, Jesse, does a YouTube show called Shipping Things, which is about helping people understand kind of like how the stuff around you gets manufactured and, Mm -hmm. and shipped. And so we, we have a pretty strong point of view on creating an internal culture that is fun and exciting and creating stuff in the world that helps people, even people who are not our customers, that allows Lumi in the long term to be a, the type of company that others want to emulate. I mean, that's a hard thing to do, but it's something that we aspire to. You made an, a sort of side comment about like you're not a vertical integrator, so you're not making the actual packaging. You you do prototyping, right. 
But you also just said, you know, we may not do packaging in the future or, or, or whatever. So where do you draw those limits or, or where, how do you build your vision around what the company is in a way that makes sense to you at every point in time? Well, you know, we're not planning to get out of the, the world of packaging anytime soon. We, we, mm-hmm. we feel like we have a pretty good point of view on what's going on there. And we're building a lot. We're investing a lot in that area. I guess my point was it's, it's more important to me that the company is like moving in the right direction generally mm-hmm. than what we're doing at any given point in time. Like there's lots of things that we might build that we'll decide is not necessary anymore. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. We can cut those things. So in, in the Incodai days, we were completely vertically integrated. We manufactured ourselves in our own factory, you know, made the, the packaging and did direct-to-consumer e-commerce uh, mm-hmm. sales of that product, fulfilled it ourselves. So we have a good understanding, I think, of how to build that kind of company. The reason we've decided specifically not to vertically integrate with Lumi is that we wanted to maintain objectivity about the world and the challenge that you have when you become a factory is that what a factory optimizes for is they make these purchases of really big equipment. The machines that they use cost tens of millions of dollars and they're like a city block in length. They're really serious pieces of gear. And if you buy a $10 million box making machine, a flexo folder gluer, for example, uh, which is like flexographic printing process, you sort of have an incentive to make sure that it gets used as much as possible. So the way factory operators think is that they're trying to squeeze out, you know, 24-7 production using that equipment. And it's like that old expression, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks mm-hmm. like a nail. We wanted to make sure that we would be able to provide advice and recommendations to our customer that were unbiased. So we don't, because we don't have equipment and we can recommend whatever is the best solution we can give unbiased opinions on that. And that's that's one of the main reasons. Maybe someday we'll decide to vertically integrate more, but it's not really on our radar. The other mm-hmm. part that I mentioned earlier is that from a sustainability point of view, packaging is a relatively heavy thing that costs very little. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of incentivized to manufacture it close to where you're going to deliver it because otherwise the shipping gets way more expensive than the product you bought. And it turns out that for the most part, that's a more sustainable approach as well because you know, you're, you're reducing the amount of carbon footprint and, and emissions that go on in the freight process. That means that in America, we have you know, over a thousand box factories and they're all plugged into this network. For us to build up a thousand box factories to make sure we could service like a wide geographical area would be you know, an investment on the order of like multi-billion dollars yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. which we're, we're not necessarily like prepared to do at this point in time so we want to maintain that and if we if we decided okay we're going to have one plant and it's going to be in los angeles then that biases us further like we have to now say like even if that plant was able to do lots of different things it would geographically focus us so that's that's why but in terms of like the products that we sell you know we're already expanding in other areas outside of packaging like we do paper goods that are not traditionally thought of like packaging like things like stickers and Mm -hmm. um, printed stationery we do cotton drawstring bags for whatever reason has become one of our best-selling categories and that's a category that is not traditionally thought of as packaging what we're really trying to do is help these e-commerce businesses with all the stuff that is adjacent to the product that they're really focused on making which is you know whatever they're doing uh, Mm -hmm. as their core business 
So you said that your main risk or concern or, or challenge is focused on the people and building the kind of company that you want to have. How do you do that? How do you work with your team to do that while also balancing the needs of the day-to-day operations? Well, you know, it's a really good question. I think that, first of all, you need to have a strong internal moral compass, and you have to develop that. Over time, it gets more and more complicated as you bring in different people. You have to align yourselves, whoever is going to be doing the hiring. In the beginning, I was involved in every hire that we made at Limi. I knew, you know, every single person, read their resume, probably interviewed them. And we're not huge. We're, you know, 30 plus people at this point. But it's already gotten to the point where it's not really feasible for me to have that depth of a relationship with every candidate. And so it's really important to make sure that you have a a shared set of values that everybody agrees on, (laughs) Mm -hmm. generally speaking, and that you apply that in an even way as you're looking to bring new people into the company. So, you know, making sure you bring the right people into the company is super important. And then creating an environment where they can learn and grow and be their best selves. And there's a ton of details around that. It's a, it's a complicated thing, but I think that in general, it means um, we look for curious people, most of all. We look for people who are interested in learning. Most of the people who work at Lumi have never worked in packaging before, but they're curious because they bring a certain set of skills, whether those are programming or photography or account management or something like that. They bring a certain set of skills that they've developed. And we want to teach them everything that they need to know about the supply chain around what we're manufacturing so that they can be effective in their job. And then we want to take them even further than that. We want to help them, whatever they're good at, really take those skills to the next level and allow them to flourish in that environment. And if they want, be a part of like sharing that back out to the world. So we're, we're very open in terms of the way that we explain the things about how Lumi is set up. We try to write blog posts and make videos and podcasts and things like that, much like you do at ThoughtBot, just sort of sharing our process and helping the outside world understand how we think about it and being okay with the fact that, you know, we're probably wrong about a decent percentage of what we're trying to do. But if we're open about it, we can analyze it and look at how we can do it better in the future. How do you create a common set of values across different parts of the company. So sales versus engineering, for example. I think the values that you look for when you're trying to have values that work for an entire company are not values that are tied to anything that you're doing in your day-to-day job. They're values like I was mentioning curiosity or empathy or you know a work ethic. Those are the things that we look for that we're not necessarily interested in teaching. There's certain things that we expect people to bring. We expect a certain level of respect for other human beings, for people who join Lumi. So those are things that we look for in people who join and that we try to reinforce as a company. And if we set it up that way, we hope that the right things will flow from there. And each team will have its own process and each team will have its own subset of things that they care about in particular. Like I was mentioning on the engineering side, we have a very strong type-driven approach to programming that doesn't (laughs) someone in sales doesn't care about that at all you know maybe it affects their day-to-day because the specs of the products that they're selling are well organized but they don't necessarily associate with that on a deep level and is that okay yeah i think it's fine 
my my old analogy when we were you know 12 people or less than 15 was like our job is to be like oceans 11 like our job is to be like this like ragtag crew where each person is a specialist in a different area you know you have Mm -hmm. someone who's going to be like spying and you've got the like guy who could do the acrobatics and you've got the The explosives person yeah you you, you've got this like crew the dirty dozen type of model where each person is sort of a specialist in their area but they're not just a specialist they're also the person who's doing that job they have the knowledge and the skills to to actually do it but eventually that model breaks because you can't be 12 people forever i mean you can but in our case we we have some ambitious goals that require us to to grow a little bit beyond that and so that model breaks you can't just have this like ragtag dirty dozen team you you have to start building and then the next analogy I don't know what it is yet. It's like a small mm-hmm. village. It's a thing where it's like groups of Ocean's Elevens. Right. <laughs> well, when you have the group of people who are experts at what they do, to function properly, they need like implicit trust in each other. That mm-hmm. they, they all have each other's back. They're all motivated by the same goal. And they are experts at what they do. And maybe it is a village, like the the bigger thing, but it's like, you know, the blacksmith shop in the village. So if you're a developer, you don't necessarily like need to know all the ins and outs or care about what's going on in that blacksmith shop. Yeah. But there needs to be a certain amount of trust that like they're experts and they know what they're doing and they're delivering around a, a common set of a overall outcome. That's totally right. And you, you probably have more to teach me about that than I have to teach you about it. I mean, I think that growing an engineering organization is super hard and it has its own within just engineering there are different specialities and structures that have to develop and we're not there yet i mean our our engineering team is less than 10 people so we're still figuring it out i think the thing that we haven't really figured out and, and, and i suspect a lot of companies run up against is is when you don't have that trust if you don't have the trust it becomes too easy to say well sales is selling the wrong thing or marketing's not working right or engineering isn't delivering fast enough those things become blame and yeah you would never well I, I can't say never but like sometimes we say those things about others because we don't understand or don't have the empathy when we would never say that sort of thing about ourselves and if we did we would recognize it was a really it maybe is a really serious problem that we should be fixing but I think we, when you don't have that trust, it's, it's easy to sort of put it on other people in a way that you would never on yourself or your own team. Yeah. And there's some things that you can do to help that. One of the things that we've done that I just consider good hygiene as a company is since day one of Lumi.com, we have shared our metrics with everyone on the team, you know, even interns and stuff who come in our revenue numbers, our you know number of customers, all of that. We talk about it once a week in our all-hands meeting and because we, we just want everyone to know where we're at, what's the health of the company currently, what are the areas that are currently problematic that we're trying to solve. And there's, whenever you're building a system that has you know multiple parts, there's always going to be a bottleneck. There's mm-hmm. always one part of it, at least, that's going to be weaker than the others, and you're going to work hard on fixing that one. And then something else is going to be, become the, the limiting factor. And so that's okay because we can talk about that as a company and say, hey, this is an area that needs extra attention right now. And everybody's on the same page that that part needs some work. 
And our job as, as leaders, me and, and Jesse, is to make sure that we find the right people to lead those efforts and to empower them to you know, do the best job that they can, making that piece of the mm. process as good as possible. Have you always done the on, all hands meeting? Yeah, we've, we've been doing that forever, as, as long as I could remember. I think it's just super important. And how do, how do you actually run that meeting? Does each department or person who has an area of responsibility present their own area, or how does it work? No, we actually have a different thing that we do that is, is non-mandatory, but also sort of all hands e, which is a thing we do on Fridays called Feature Friday, where someone, a specific person from the company, presents something that they've been working on for the past few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really fun because everybody's got something that they're doing that's I mean, at the scale where we're at, even (laughs) at 30 people, which is like relatively small, people are working full time all day for three months on something that's like really cool. And a lot of people at the company don't know what that thing was. And so to get a chance to present it and all the intricacies and like challenges that they ran into is really fun. The all hands that we do as, as a whole company, just talking about the metrics, we'll talk about the numbers. And then, you know, if we have some new additions to the team or departures. We'll talk about that. If there's a major milestone as a company that we just hit or something, you know, really important happened. Um, there's been a lot more travel lately because we've got, we're based in Los Angeles, but we've got customers all over the place. We've got factories all over the place. So people will go and travel and meet our factory in, in China and talk to them a whole bunch and bring back photos and explain what they learned and stuff like that. So we'll have some people come up if they've got a major thing. And then We'll just talk about the big things that are happening. Try to keep Mm -hmm. it relatively short, like 30 minutes or 45 minutes, kind of cover all the big things. But probably the most important thing is just the health and hygiene of the company overall. Like if it was five minutes and everybody had to be present, the thing that I would cover is the numbers because I think that's the, the most important thing for everyone to know. Cool. Well, thank you for joining me and for sharing. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the audience does too. It was great. Thank you. You mentioned you have a podcast as well as Jesse has a YouTube show. You want to say the specific addresses and how people can find out more about those? So my podcast is called Well Made. You can get to it by typing wellmade.show. And Jesse's YouTube show is shippingthings.show. Well Made is a podcast sort of like this one, but a little bit more focused around the people and the ideas around your favorite online brands. So if you've been (laughs) listening to a lot of podcasts and you're like, Hey, uh, I've been hearing a lot about, you know, Burrow lately, which is a uh, company that sells couches on the internet. Um, I've been hearing their pads on the, the podcast I listen to. If you're wondering what that's all about, we had the founder on the program and he explained uh, some of that. We've also had design agencies. We've, we've had great people like Kevin Kelly, who is just an amazing guy that I've looked up to for a really long time. Inventor of that thousand true fans blog post that was really great, you know, thought technology, as, as my friend likes to say. And then Jesse's YouTube show is sort of like, imagine there's been a lot of different comparisons, like maybe Bill Nye for packaging or Sesame Street meets logistics. It's very goofy, but the information is really real. It's like serious definitions of all kinds of terminology. And we make all our own props. Part of the prototyping lab has gone towards like making props out of Corrugate for Mm -hmm. the show, uh, which has been a lot of fun. So I recommend that if you're into just understanding how the world works, that's uh, shippingthings.show. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining me. I really appreciate it. 
This was fun. Thanks. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by the wonderful Tom Ovarsky. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.